Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for November 22nd, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome back, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, glad to have you all both on. we got a lot of topics to talk about in about 20 minutes we're going to welcome back to the show someone who's been on multiple times um, from the Washington Examiner, their um, editor, uh, David Mark. He'll join us and talk about a lot of different political topics um, across the nation. Uh, but right off, um, a lot of the moves of the Trump administration's uh, legal team have been quite outrageous, so we thought we would start off entering into that with an outrage from Tim Shift. Go ahead. Take it away, Tim. We have a republic with a democratic form of government, a representative democracy. Maintaining its health is a tenuous and oftentimes brutally tough undertaking. The very nature of our form of government has always resisted the emergence of those who would attempt to seize authoritarian power. We are now under attack as never before. We have a defeated president who is openly attempting to thwart the will of the clear majority of voters and retain power. And it is happening in real time as we all watch. The thing is, as you all know, it's it's not even close. Biden leads in electoral votes, 306, 232. Exactly the numbers that Trump won by in 2016 when he pronounced his electoral victory a, quote, landslide. Biden is also over 6 million votes ahead as we come on the air tonight. Now, just imagine how crazy it would be if it was actually close. Imagine that Biden had not won both Georgia and Arizona, for instance, and was sitting at 279 electoral votes. Not only Trump, but I bet every Republican in this country would be screaming that Trump had won. We're we're fortunate it isn't close. Uh, This renders any of their arguments about how it was stolen pretty much useless. But there have been, to date, 36 cases, lawsuits, whatever, that Trump's campaign has brought to court. And they've lost 24 so far and just been thrown out of court. The other 12 are waiting to be decided on. This nonsense is causing damage in probably about three main ways. Number one, it is uh, stopping a normal transition and in the middle of a, a pandemic. 
Number two, it is undermining people's faith in our elections. And I want to deal for a moment with number three because it is giving rise to just nutty conspiracy theories. Um, You know, right now over half of Republicans, according to polling, think the election was rigged. And here's my personal favorite of the conspiracy theories. It goes like this. The U.S. Army or some government entity raids an office in Frankfurt, Germany that belongs to the Skytel company that counts all of our votes. They seize a server that shows that millions of votes were actually switched and that Trump actually won 410 electoral votes, including the state of California. Now, Louis Gomer, a U.S. congressman, is peddling that one out there and has been. And an Internet site called the Gateway Pundit has picked it up, and it, it has, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers that read it daily. And I, I even read a local letter to the editor that, you know, some local citizen here wrote where they were talking about the same exact thing. And, of course, according to the story, George Soros is in on it, and so is Russia. Well, as it turns out, the U.S. Army or some other government agency did not raid the Skytel company. That company, by the way, does not have an office in Frankfurt, Germany. There was no server because there was no raid. This company has already put out a press release saying that George Soros has nothing to do with the company and that they don't do any business with Russia. And none of this is true. None of it at all. But this is where we are. And and all this has happened in the last week. The president of the United States is peddling similar works of mythology. I've, I've always believed that this country's institutions would provide enough in checks and balances and the rule of law to stop stuff like this. But, you know, I, I don't know if I believe that anymore. So, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to say, David and Catherine, take it away and talk to me and talk to our listeners and try to comfort us all because I I just don't know where this is going anymore. Yes, I think the difference here is you've always had these conspiracy theories, but the conspiracy theories don't have the person that, you know, headed that ticket because not always is it the person that wins or his people. Um, the ones that you know uh, spread the conspiracy, but the person that's ahead of this spreads it, has this legal team, what a collection those three are, and they're probably more, but, but between Jenna Ellis, Rudy um, Giuliani, and Sidney Powell, what a triumphant they make, um, and that's the big difference. Catherine, what do you think? I, I just don't know what I, I'm with Tim. I'm, I, I just it concerns me that people believe this, and then mm-hmm. it's it's such a distraction. And um, like you mentioned, it 
uh, undermines people's faith in our government and in our voting process and in our and and then ultimately in the um, leadership it undermines the leadership of the next president um, it's it, it's um, it's very disturbing and uh, like like David said you know in in the past I mean we've all we've all grown up around all these um, conspiracy theories we all have friends who you know think there was no moon landing or that you know there was a cabal that assassinated uh, JFK or you know there's a million of them but we never had um, a president or even a um, an important uh, influential leader that uh, bought into them so they were you know put to the sides and they were always like yeah those are those crazy conspiracy theorists you know, maybe we went on a deep dive on the internet at some point to see, like, where are they getting this? But we never really believed it. So um, it's it's a big concern in this in these times when there's so much information out there that people are grasping at all the fake information instead of being informed by all the incredible. Um, and I mean, it's the opposite of this is that we're all distracted by this, but we're not paying any attention to the scientific research and scientific uh, background on the virus and how we can, how we can um, protect ourselves. It's, it's just a little bit of a um, backwards world, bizarro world, but it is concerning. Yeah. um, I I do think that those, the three um, defense people he's found just make the case look so much worse. Last, uh, about eight days ago, um, Jen Ellis was on uh, Bill Maher, and he was baffled by her. And she's by far the best one of those three. Sidney Powell um, is just on another whole plane, and actually the, the Trump legal team said she no longer works for him. And then Rudy Giuliani this past week. His um, hair, I guess, melted um, in some way during the press conference. Now, if what he was saying would have been, you know, the second coming of Marbury, Marbury versus Madison, it would have been one thing. I guess we shouldn't make fun of it, but the legal arguments were melting away faster than the hair dye. Um, Tim, how much does this sideshow of a legal team um, hurt the case? They don't have a case. They, you know, yep. that hasn't stopped them at all. They have no case. They have no proof. They walk in the court, and judges dismiss it with prejudice. They, they, they are, they are angering judges that were appointed by Trump. They have nothing. They have no proof. They walk in and they say, "Throw all these." A ballots out. They say, why? Well, they're illegal. What's your proof? We don't have any. Well, case dismissed. And they just go right to the next one. I watched that thing with Rudy Giuliani and Powell and them, and they were just babbling. It, it was almost incoherent. It didn't even make any sense. They were, they were just, uh, you know, Russia was in on it and uh, radicals. And, and I just never heard the like of stuff. They even mentioned George Soros. I mean, come on. None of it, it's, 
I tell you, it's damaging this country. It's damaging it a lot. That poll I alluded to was a Reuters poll, and 52% of Republican voters that voted in the last presidential election thinks the election is rigged, and it's not even close. I mean, how do you reason? I don't see how we reason with people like this. I don't see how we're ever going to reason with people like this. And And as long as Trump is on the scene, I just don't know anymore what we're going to do about it. I think it's gotten that bad. Yes, I, and, and that's the thing. I think that most of the um, Republican leadership are kind of frozen because, one, they really probably don't think he's going away. They think, oh, well, he'll um, continue to be on the scene, and we'll ha- you know he may be the nominee in 2024. Or if he leaves, either – he will control a lot of things through his influence, or he will have this new media network he talks about. And so they're they're afraid of him. Um, isn't that the sense you get, Catherine, that they're just – Republicans live in fear of Trump point? Uh, I think they live in fear of him. I think they're more in fear of his supporters, actually, yeah. because they're the yeah. voters. I think they're yeah. in right. fear of that. Um I just wanted to point one thing out that I found extremely funny, and it's a little thing, but I thought it was funny. I guess in Michigan they were presenting some data, and the data was for a town in Minnesota. Like they're they're not <laughs> even good lawyers, you know. They're like the the like bottom of the dregs of lawyers. And I think the other thing that we have to rec- recognize is that I think a lot of um, a lot of people in this country think that lawyers just by being lawyers are smart and they have, you know, um, a lot of information and they know what they're doing just because they're attorneys. So I think that, and especially if it's someone like Rudy Giuliani, who's got, you know, who is the mayor and uh, has this like long reputation. Now our perception of his reputation is different than a lot of people's. But so I think that there's some influence there um, that is just inherent in their in, in them. So people trust them, and I I think that's a, a flaw, another flaw that we can't really get over. I don't know how we, you know, fight back against that. Yeah, I, I, Rudy Giuliani, he has probably had as bad a political year in 2020. Uh, as anybody, I mean, I know his his reputation, you know, on New Year's Day almost a year ago was not what it was, say, in 2003, but it was definitely better than it is now. Between the Borat movie, between the you know Melton hair dye, there's been all this just absolute crazy loyalty to Trump that's just almost beyond what Trump himself or his children. Um, would give or expect. Um, Tim, do you yeah. think you know Rudy Giuliani's really taking a hit this year? Uh, he he is he's just turned himself into an absolute clown that no one except obviously Trump takes seriously. Trump is loving this stuff. He he really is. Uh, I mean, he he's just loving the havoc he is creating, man. This is getting serious. We're supposed to be in the middle of a transition. Do you know that Kamala Harris went to a Senate intelligence briefing uh, this week, and 
she cannot even share with Joe Biden what she learned in that briefing. Uh, She actually knows more than he does because he is shut out of any briefings from anyone in the administration by Trump. We're going to have a new president on January the 20th, and and the the current occupant of the White House is doing everything he can to destroy that presidency and blow this country up before this president – that this new president becomes president. It is, this this is really serious. Uh, he he he's just uh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, speaking of Kamala Harris, now one, I think she could, if she wanted to, share this with Joe Biden because she would have to me. Um, this is like a whole new world of precedents, and I could, couldn't see anybody saying, well, you couldn't share it with a private citizen. He's not a private citizen. He's the president-elect. Um, have fun with that one. But he's not the president-elect. Well, he he's is in everybody's elect. eyes. It's rational. In everybody's um, eyes but the GS. Yeah. And so, but now, look, no, I think listen, it would uh, be a, a big breach if she were to share that. Yeah, which I is think just she scary. Recognizes that. It's just absolutely scary because there's these um, – Appointees or what have you, they're holding this whole process up. Um, some lawyer from Missouri that that really could turn over some of this power, and I don't know why she hadn't because apparently she's not. She she could stay in the office after Trump leaves, and even if he fired her, they could hire her right back if she you know does the right thing. Um, but getting to Kamala Harris, the Senate, uh, she usually would be making plans by now to resign her Senate seat to take on the vice presidency. I'm not sure exactly, you know, what time frame that happens, but I know preparations would be made. Apparently there's like no, you know, set date on that whatsoever because of how this thing's unfolding. She doesn't want to give up the Senate seat and then something crazy happens, which apparently, you know, the Republicans are trying to do on several fronts, Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin. Um, I know that you know Gavin Newsom's starting to think about filling that seat, but he really can't go any further because she, rightfully so, is a little bit uh, scared. Don't you think, Tim? I, I think so because we are, as I mentioned, watching in real time this administration trying openly to steal the presidential election, to overturn the presidential election. They're going from one state to the next. They are calling state officials to the White House for meetings. Uh, They are making no secret as to what they're trying to do. And just where does it stop? That is the question. I don't see how Joe Biden is remaining as calm as he is. I don't believe I could do that. Uh, At what point will the Biden folks have to consider going to court to try to turn some of this stuff loose and get the process started? You know who could put a stop to this immediately? Mitch McConnell and the Republican leadership. They're a bunch of cowards. They won't go over there and do anything. Every bit of this is because McConnell, number one, as y'all have mentioned, is afraid of Trump's supporters and the fact that Trump might still – 
dominate the Republican Party, which I think he will after he leaves office. And number two, they want these two Senate seats down here. And they would, they don't want to rock the boat and upset Trump voters that are going to come out and vote. And that's what every bit of this is about before they're doing incalculable damage to this country. My goodness. And we will talk about that later because there's a lot of ways you can play this, and and it could has downsides and upsides different ways. But right now, we want to welcome our guest to the program. Welcome back to the Kudzu Vine for multiple times now from the Washington Examiner, David Mark. Hey, good to be back with you. Yeah, good to have you on. Well, first thing, uh, I think we've had you on since you've been the editor at the uh, Washington Examiner, but kind of tell us what's going on with your news organization. Yeah, I've been there for about two years or so, and this was an unusual year to be directing campaign coverage, needless to say, with <laughs> COVID-19. <laughs> you know, the, plan, the, the plan had been really through early March to have reporters out. They were out covering the primaries. All the different candidates, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, all the rest. And that all came to a standstill in early March. And so we've kind of been covering Joe Biden and the company from a distance. But at, at least we're heading, we think, toward a new administration. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm certain of it, but it could get ugly before, before it's all over with. Yes. Yeah, well, um, yes. I want to go and ask about lovely. one thing. That's going to lead into something else. Um, David, I didn't realize it, but with the passing of really a North American icon, uh, Alex Trebek, the longtime host of Jeopardy, um, you posted that he actually had a question about your book, uh, Dog Whistles, on his show. Kind of tell us, when did that question appear and all? Yeah, this was actually about my first book, Going Dirty, The Art of Negative Campaigning. You are correct. And this – yeah, this appeared. This is actually the first question in 2013, and was the show that aired on January 1st, 2013, and it was the very first question of the show. So, for whatever it's worth, it was the first Jeopardy question all that year. This was about. This was more than six years after the book had come out, so it was a complete surprise. I was just minding my own business at home. I hadn't seen the show, and my father called me saying. Did you know your book was just a Jeopardy question? And then within the next five minutes, I got maybe 10 emails from family and friends suggesting it. So it was completely out of the blue. And uh, fortunately, uh, a friend of mine was able to find the clip and get it up on YouTube so, and, and get it out there. And it was, I'd say my proudest professional accomplishment because that was not what I was expecting. It was completely surprised. It's like a, composer going to an elevator and hearing their music being played or something like that. So it, so when Mr. Trebek died, I posted up there, I said, for slightly selfish reasons, but it was still still notable. I was just amazed they used the book as, a, as a, the basis of a question. Yes, and I mean, honestly, you should be proud, but I mean, part of the reason you are so proud is because he was the host of the quintessential knowledge game show. I mean, I mean, that's kind of one of those hallmarks of, of North American knowledge is, you know, knowing and doing well on Jeopardy. Absolutely, and I'm a big fan. I watched it for many years. I just – I did not happen to have it on that night for whatever reason, but it – that meant a lot to me too, just having seen it and knowing so many people who watch it. So it was 
definitely something that brought back memories for me. But, of course, it's sad to see Alex Trebek pass away. Uh, he was so good in that role. and It'll be interesting to see who they get to replace him. There's been some speculation about that. But it's going to be big shoes to fill. Oh, most definitely so. Well, talking about your books, Going Dirty and uh, Dog Whistles, um, and you can tell me the full title uh, in a second, but we are watching the Georgia runoff, and I don't know in, you know, if you get to see some of these commercials, but what uh, appointed Senator Kelly Loeffler has put out on Reverend Raphael Warnock, um, it is definitely going dirty, and I just don't think there are any dog whistles to it. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've been familiar with what's going on, but uh, give us kind of your thoughts as the author of those two books that seem quite relevant. Yeah, it's getting awfully ugly in Georgia. I don't have to tell you about it. Uh, and that she's using some of his past affiliations, and you might dare say that it's not very subtle racial themes there. It's not just in that race, but also David Perdue, the sitting Republican senator, versus John Ossoff. And there's been some controversy there in that David Perdue intentionally mispronounced Kamala Harris's name at a rally in a way that seemed to have some, uh, you might put it generously, a racial tinge to it. And then I think there was a campaign photo uh, some some months back elongating John Ossoff's nose. Of course, he's Jewish, and that's just the worst kind of stereotype. So it's getting awfully ugly, and I expect it to get much worse ahead of January 5th. Yes, I tell you how ugly it was. They were playing one of those attack ads almost every commercial break during the Falcons game, and I was ready to get back to the Falcons getting sacked <laughs> on almost a play-by-play basis. It was that bad, um, those those ads. <laughs> well, one final wow. question for you, and then I'm going to pass it to um, Catherine and Tim. And recently uh, on your Twitter feed, you had a poll kind of it was talking about the georgia race but i think it was regarding polling really anywhere in america and you know like how much value do you glean for it uh, uh from it and this is the second cycle in a row uh, at least presidential cycle in which polling has not been 100 percent accurate accurate to say the least uh not that it ever is 100 percent um but but you know it's become a uh, not as trusted of a science as we'd like um, what's kind of your thoughts on how political uh, analysts like yourself are going to be able to use um, polling going forward? Yeah, what I was trying to get at in that poll was, as you just said, in the last couple presidential cycles and even the midterms in 2018, polling was off in some pretty significant ways. So I, I put that up there just honestly curious what people think about it, and it was pretty much split. Most people said, I believe it. Somewhat, and the polls basically showed both races tied. I think one, I think it had Raphael Warnock at 49% to Kelly Leffler at 48%, and then David Perdue and uh, John Ossoff tied at 47%. Of it. Just doing that off the top of my head. But I just wonder what, how people thought if it was reliable or not. And there are serious issues in the polling industry right now. And this has kind of been going in the works for a while, but I think we've really reached a reckoning. It started really in the 1980s when more people, it sounds funny now because it sounds antiquated, but it was a big deal back then to have answering machines and people could start screening their calls and they could see caller ID. They got less interested in answering phones 
And then, of course, the advent of the cell phone or the popularization of the cell phone in the late 1990s and in the early 2000s as they became ubiquitous, uh, it became a lot harder to reach a proper sample size because <clears throat> fewer people started having landlines, and the ones who did are tend to be older, which, is, of course, gives you a skewed sample. And then just the last couple of cycles, it seems like the bottom has fallen out. Part of it, I think, is the Trump effect in that you, you get people who are so distrustful of institutions, whether it's the media, polling, et cetera, and if you're – more Trump-leaning, you're probably just not going to answer the poll, or maybe you won't say the truth, but more likely you just won't answer. And so you tend to get sample sizes that are uh, more skewed toward <clears throat> Democratic candidates. And the, the big lesson I learned from all this is just not to be over-reliant. And I, I'm kind of a little frustrated myself in that I, I went against my gut instinct on a couple of races, like the Mays Senate race, where Susan Collins beat her Democratic challenger who had been up in the polls four or five points for several months. And of course, Susan Collins won it relatively easily. And my gut feeling told me that Susan Collins was going to win again, but all the polls said otherwise. And I said, well, I guess that's right. But I've just learned, of course, I'm going to watch them, but I'm also not going to give them too much credence because things can change. Polls are a snapshot in time. And we should. I think we've just become much too reliant on them. Yeah, I'll tell you. It's, it's funny you mentioned Maine. Uh, something that's very interesting to think about is one of the state. Well, back before this, I had heard that um, polls were the hardest. The states were hardest to polls were states more new voters, states that were more diverse, particularly with Latino voters. They said Nevada was one of the hardest states to poll. But a state like Georgia should be pretty hard to poll because it has a lot of new residents. It does have a lot of diversity. Um, And Georgia's polls were one of the more accurate states. And then a state like Maine, a a state that's very white, a state without diversity, a state that's very stable, not a lot of new folks coming in. You would think Maine would be quite easy to poll, and Maine was as off as any state in the nation. And to me, that kind of speaks to there's probably a lot of, um, in particular, new Republican voters, Trumpist Republican voters, that either A, um, just won't answer the calls and take the polls or just aren't honest with the pollsters. For whatever reason, and I think Maine is a clear sign of that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's just tougher also in smaller population states where Georgia is a good, you know, good size. It's not one of the largest states, but it's what, in the top 10 in the country or so. It's about it's, 10. It's, yeah. yeah, it's about 10. So even if you have trouble getting a sample size, if pollsters are patient, there's millions and millions of people in Georgia. You could probably – eventually work through it and get some sort of decent sample size where the the poll is going to be pretty accurate. It's just tougher in Maine. It's just not enough people to be able to do that. There's a lot more margin for error. But I agree with the reasons you mentioned. Also, Florida was probably the biggest off state that was off, and it's not the first time. This was one that it looks like Trump will end up winning by more than three points. But also in 2018, the polls showed the then-Democratic Senator Bill Nelson holding on in Florida. He ended up losing. And also this year, Republicans picked up a couple of House seats in South Florida that was not really predicted. 
So for whatever reason, Florida is off big time. I think it's partly for the reasons you mentioned, lots of new people moving in, et cetera. Also, people probably have their own phone, own phone, old phone numbers with different area codes and whatnot. People might not even – they might be hard to trace in Florida. And also, you get a number of people coming from Puerto Rico and elsewhere. So there's a real reckoning, reckoning to be had in the polling industry. Yes, Florida, the white whale of political consulting. Well, I'm going to pass this thing over to Catherine and then to Tim with some more questions. Catherine? Hey, thanks for being on the show tonight. We really appreciate your being here. Um, oh, happy to I'm be gonna back. I'm going to change up the completely um, because I think we have to start thinking about what's next after we resolve this uh, election, and that's going to yeah. be reapportionment once we get the census uh, data in, if that data can be trusted, because uh, there were a lot of problems with the census this year. But we're looking sure. at um, reapportionment, and, um, you know, there's a number of states that have a commission, and it's not as partisan. But, for instance, in Georgia, we don't have such a thing. And there's a lot of states yeah. that don't. So I, I, just, I just think it'll be um, a challenge, especially with the greater division that we have now between the parties on how we're going to get through reapportionment in a fair way. Um, I noticed that you had um, tweeted about this a little bit, and so I just wondered what your thoughts are about as we move forward. I mean, obviously it's going to be another probably year before it really comes up, but it is something that is really important, and a lot of people don't really think about it. (laughs) Yeah, I was getting kind of geeky over the weekend on a couple of states talking about reapportionment where it like in Maryland, which is where I live, which is a strongly democratic state, there's, there's eight house seats and there's one Republican. And there's been chatter about whether the state could be drawn in such a way to dilute that one seat and and win all eight. And then up in New Hampshire, I was querying about that. But George is a really fascinating one in that it's the old school way of district drawing and you you mentioned the word fair which unfortunately does not really have much to do with (laughs) redistricting Uh, and it's just straight out gerrymandering of course republicans still control all the levers of state government i think the question they're going to find is how greedy can they get can they try to do what was done in texas where you really dilute any areas of democratic growth but it reaches a point where it become it backfires because then other districts held by Republicans be more can be more competitive. It'll be interesting to see if, if the one now that seems pretty solid. I think it's the sixth district by uh, Lucy McBath entering her second term. I might have the district wrong, no, but the right. one in in suburban yeah suburban Atlanta, which I, this is Tom Price's old district just from four years ago. He won easily the former HHS secretary who had his own problems. It's a whole other discussion, and it's just really <laughs> turned. And and she won pretty easily, and then Carolyn Bordeaux picked up that other seat, which that's amazing because the Democrats had a pretty tough time with House seats. That was one of the only Republican seats that flipped. So those would be obvious targets for Republicans in the state, but what they also might do is just an incumbent protection plan or incumbent protection racket, you might say, where they basically try and solidify their existing Republicans and then give Democrats a few, throw them a few bones. So 
we'll see how those seats end up. There's a couple different ways they could go. My guess is they realize the state is changing, and they, be, they better be pretty careful about protecting what they have now, not go too far. But these are politicians, so you never know. <laughs> well, and I think there, there are um, uh, goals and um, there, there are plans to try to make, make uh, reapportionment in Georgia more uh, done by a commission, but I, but no one can really agree to it because. Well, it, it's interesting. It's, the states where it's actually done by a commission tend to end up working out better for the party in power, even though, because as I was just mentioning, those, when it's drawn by state level politicians, they're really the first and only goal is incumbent protection, carving out safe seats for existing office holders. But a commission if it's done right, doesn't care about who's in, sitting in office. So they're just going to try and draw fairer seats. That might put make it more risky, dilute some of the political power in each district, but also help out, make it more competitive. Like in California, Democrat and Pennsylvania, those were both states with independent commissions. De- Democrats picked up a whole bunch of seats this past decade because the districts were drawn by independent commissions, if they had been drawn by by sitting politicians, the gains probably would have been fewer. So I, I would be I, – I think that's how it should be in every state personally. I don't see that happening, but that seems like the fairest way of doing this. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to pass it to Tim now. Sure. Uh, good evening, Mr. Mark. Thank you for being with us again tonight. Um, Sure you had you had mentioned uh, on Twitter that lame duck periods for defeated presidents can still be consequential, and you gave the example of what Jimmy Carter did, among others. Uh, what how, how, what word would you apply on, on this family show? I might add right now to this <laughs> lame duck period so far. Oh, shameful! I think that's it. It's clean <laughs> enough. I, I, this is going to go down as one of the worst episodes in presidential history. What outgoing President Trump is doing in denying the transition uh, tools of government to President-elect Joe Biden, not letting him get up to speed on national security and. That's real serious. Even somebody like Joe Biden, who has decades of experience, doesn't know what the latest intelligence is, where what the budget deficit numbers are, all the latest facts and figures. And it seems like Trump is doing it just to be spiteful. Obviously, he's going to lose this election, but it's just to be mean. And I think the Biden people probably are just having to work around this as best they can. But I... I I would hope you traditionally the pre, the outgoing president gets sent they get one last ride on Air Force One to go wherever they are for Jimmy Carter was down to Georgia or Ronald Reagan out to California, even though it's not Air Force One, but the presidential plane uh, I would hope that in this case, the new president Joe Biden would deny that to Trump because he's not really been cooperative in any of the norms. I don't even think he's going to show up at the inauguration of the new president. So it's just a very ugly period in our history and we've just got to get through it. But I, I guess it's not really that surprising at this point. Yeah. What, 
What do you think the president's end game is here with his refusal to either concede or conduct a, a seamless transition? And how badly is this hurting the country? Oh, I think it's doing real damage. As I mentioned, there are real national security issues. And then Trump is taking big steps like withdrawing troops from Afghanistan and elsewhere that have profound consequences. We could debate the wisdom of some of those plans, but it's not something you just do at the end of your term. Yes, he has the right to as president, but it's something that's considered that you have a national address to the American people and all kinds of other things. So I think it's doing tremendous damage. I I think there's a couple reasons. One is just spite. I think he's a poor loser in all the way that you know, we learned in Little League or we might teach our kids to, to behave or grandkids, whatever it might be, to uh, to be a good sport about it. It's hard to lose. No, we've all, Anybody, you've all been involved in politics. It's awful to lose, but mm-hmm. you always mm-hmm. take that chance when you get into a race. <laughs> you just got to right. deal with it. I think part of it, too, is they want to cover up some of the documents. Yeah, this is just my own speculation here, but they don't really want Biden people having free room at the administration until they're out of there. And I, I would hope the Biden team is, if not saying it publicly, but putting them on notice. A federal crime to destroy documents and, and such, and mm-hmm. you got to be real careful about that so, sort of thing. Well, uh, you know, another thing you've written about uh, that that's going along with all this was, was the firing of Christopher uh, Krebs. Now, this is one of you know several firings conducted by the president since the election. Uh, why do you think he's doing all of this all of a sudden? I think it's like trying to settle scores, kind of like at the end of The Godfather, you might say, mm-hmm. like a mafioso boss. Uh, Christopher Krebs, who is highly regarded, he was basically uh, the cyber director for the Department of Homeland Security. He had the audacity to say that these elections were free of outside interference. They were run cleanly and fairly, which you think would be a good thing, but that did not sit well with Trump and he went after him, just like so many other officials. Uh, Christopher Krebs, I, I know, I don't know myself, but I know people around D.C. You know, he's a smart, accomplished guy. He'll get another job. He will be fine. Uh, but he's, you know, no public service should have to deal. Public servants should have to deal with such things and have their reputations besmirched. But I think mm-hmm. it's just spiteful, and that's how Trump operates. Wow. Well, let's say we get through this period and Kamala Harris becomes the vice president of the United States. What's your thoughts on who might replace her in the U.S. Senate? That's a great question. That's my home state. And from what I'm hearing, there's a lot of pressure on the Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, to get some diversity in there, probably a Latino and mm-hmm. there's, there's – and which makes sense. There's actually never been a Latino senator from California. It's a big part of the population, obviously. A couple of names are mentioned. One is the state attorney general, Javier Becerra, who has been very mm-hmm. active in litigation, state-level litigation against the Trump administration. He was a longtime congressman, I think 24 years in the House before that, or the secretary of state, Alex Padilla, 
who's really a relatively young guy, MIT graduate, engineer, you know, really sharp guy. So those, those are a couple. Could be some of that we're not even thinking. You know, there's also the fact that it, that would still be replacing Kamala Harris with a male, with a man, and those, those have become you know, traditionally female seats, and then it was uh, Barbara Boxer before that, and, of course, Diane Feinstein still has that other Senate seat. So there might be more pressure to pick a woman, but I – Again, if you wanted to find a Latino woman, there's no shortage of those either. Uh, so he he's keeping it close to the vest. I think it probably won't be made until right before inauguration. Uh, the way things are going mm-hmm. with the transition, I can't imagine Kamala Harris resigning her tenancy until just at the end <laughs> before she takes uh, the oath of office for her new job. Uh one one more uh, quick aside to go with with that, and then I'll send it back to David. I believe she, that her seat, her term would be up in two years. Has there been any talk of a placeholder um, uh, taking that there seat? A, there was talk early on. There's actually some interesting talk about a placeholder for two years by of Jerry Brown, the former governor <laughs> uh, presidential wow. candidate who's now 80 years old. And it kind of makes some sense actually to let him mm-hmm. kind of cap his career. He actually ran for Senate back in 1982. Yeah. 1982. So mm-hmm. wow, going on 40 years, 30, 30 38 years after he might actually get there. Doesn't seem that seems to have died down a bit. I have to think that's the best way to handle these vacancies to let mm-hmm. them sit there for a little time and then fight it out in a fair fight where everybody has a chance. Uh, I like the idea of going just to special elections, but alas, that's not the, the case. But it is two years. It's like Kelly Leffler in Georgia having to defend that seat. Um, yeah. Even if she wins. Yeah, that's right. Even if she wins uh, on January 5th, She'd still be up again in 2022, so she'd right. still be almost two years. I think there's a couple of others like that in uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona. So there's going to be a few short-termers that have to run again. All right, and with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? Yes. Well, David, Mark, we enjoyed having you on the show so much, informing us from things all the way from Maine to California. Uh, we mentioned your Twitter feed more than once, so if you want to leave our listeners with how they can you know, follow you on Twitter and read your insights, which will probably lead them to your writings on Washington Examiner, go ahead and do that now. Yeah, it's just at David Mark DC, and I look forward to engaging you. Feel free to uh, direct – message me or my email is on that page too so uh, feel free to contact me as well all right well david we um thank you and we'll be reading your work in both places in the coming weeks great thanks Thanks for having me thank you sir take care have a good night That was David Mark, uh, Washington Examiner editor. Um, just always great to have him on the show. If you hadn't checked out his books, um, written multiple going negative dog whistles. I mean, they're just fascinating case studies um, and politics. And, of course, it kind of sets up what we're seeing more and more. And let's get into some going negative, if you will. And let's talk about this um, uh, Georgia Senate runoff. Actually, both of them, but um, honestly uh, – the David Perdue, John Ossoff side of this thing is just not been getting the attention or the heat in many ways um, 
that really, and I'll just be honest, what Kelly Loeffler's been doing, um, it, it was pretty indicative. She has unloaded every possible attack you could think of seemingly against Raphael Warnock. And this past weekend, she got contact traced for COVID-19, and he sent out a tweet wishing her her best that that you know she comes through this just fine and that you know she cares about her and i was like good gracious uh this is the epitome of turning the other cheek from the baptist minister Raphael warnock <laughs> uh catherine you didn't get to talk about it last week we did a little bit on the show but of course there's just new angles to this uh tell us some of your thoughts over the past 14 days well i just I'm so impressed with uh, Raphael Warnock um, and the team behind him. Uh, I think he's very thoughtful, and I really admire how he is not stooping to the level of Kelly Loeffler and the and not just Kelly Loeffler, but there's all these other organizations and PACs that are attacking him too, and. And that, you know, that tweet about how he hopes she's, you know, recovers and is back on the campaign trail. Um, I think those are all um, really indicative of what a um, stand-up man he is and really the kind of man that, the kind of person that we want in the Senate. Uh, he's obviously very thoughtful and um, his ads are, his, what we see of him is very policy-driven and um, compassionate about people. And uh, I, I just, I'm, I'm really impressed with him. And at the same time, I'm really disappointed in uh, Kelly Loeffler and how she, we never hear anything about what she wants to do as a senator. She just attacks, um, and the, the attacks are crazy, um, that he's this, some kind of radical, you know, Marxist, communist, you know, whatever, whatever word they come up with for the most current ad. Um, and I, I just don't see any, we don't see any information about what her leadership style will be or what her, you know, import, the, what the issues are that she thinks are important, aside from attacking Reverend Warnock about, you know, defunding the police. And then he comes back with an ad with, you know, a whole slew of lawmake of um, law enforcement people saying, "Oh no, we've worked with him. He wants, he he supports the police." So, I just, I just think it's very disappointing that the Republicans uh, that that tact that they're taking. But I'm very impressed with Reverend Warnock, and I'm looking forward to having him in the Senate. Yes, uh, Tim, um, I've been listening to. Uh, Barack Obama's new book throughout the week, uh, I guess starting on Tuesday and about halfway through, and he talks about Jeremiah Wright and black liberation theology and and a lot of you know what he went through and then him you know being a member of Jeremiah Wright's church and that's who married him and Michelle Obama and it really kind of layered in who Jeremiah Wright was and. And I don't think Jeremiah Wright was the person that was caricatured, but he did have a little bit more of an edge to him, was probably a little, you know, not angry, but a little more angry than maybe the average minister. Um, and, and Barack Obama kind of tells the, the, you know, the pluses and the minuses of the whole thing. I just get the sense 
that Raphael Warnock is just not in any way, shape, or form the same person as Jeremiah Wright. And that's what Kelly Loeffler seems to be doing. There's one of those pack ads that actually, you know, uses Jeremiah Wright in the ad. That's her goal. Do you think it will be effective, or do you think that people, the average voter, based on his bio spots that he does, will kind of inoculate him from that? Well, this ad has a target, and the target is, uh, you know, we know who the the target audience is, and to get them stirred up to get out to vote. Uh, You're going to see more things like this. You've seen the comparisons uh, to Fidel Castro like we talked about last week, and we know what this is, and we know why it's being done, and unfortunately, we're going to see more of the same, and I think if it's possible, uh, you, you know, you had mentioned as soon as this started, boy, she is really unloading on him. If it's possible, it's going to get even worse, especially with these polls showing like a one-point race or, or a tie race or something like that. Uh she she's going to do anything she has to do. She's proved that. And uh, uh, matter of fact, the present incarnation of of that party and its leadership have proved that. And, and it's it's just going to keep coming like that. I, I'm sorry to say, and and of course, Raphael Warnock is is not this person. But that doesn't that doesn't really matter, does it? Because the godless communist socialist radicals are coming to, to destroy America, and only only you, the voters of Georgia, can stop it, and, and that's the way they're going to play it. And in the past, that sort of thing has worked, and um, hopefully it won't work this time, but, uh, you know, I'm skeptical as to it not working, let's put it that way. I'm, I'm, I'm more thinking that but based on history, it works uh, more than it doesn't. So we'll see. Yes, uh, and uh, uh, Catherine, you know Kelly Loeffler. You know, before she came to the Senate, her husband owns the stock exchange. I know he doesn't own all of them, but the, I think the New York Stock Exchange, uh, one of them. And so they have business interests, and I think she's involved in some other country. I'm sorry, some other company. She owns the Atlanta Dream. Um, a sports franchise uh, co-owns and so she has all these interests outside or did outside of the U.S. Senate and I guess I think when Brian Kemp appointed her and she wrote her little uh, uh, you know she filled out the application like I guess any Georgian could have um, she probably didn't think the campaign would go in this direction but it has win or lose has she not really I won't say destroyed, but done major damage to her reputation outside of conservative political circles. Uh, I don't think I, I, I suppose so, but I don't think she cares. Those are her circles. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we know, and we will talk about it next week with Julie Kligman as our guest about what she's done with her co-ownership of the Atlanta Dream. Um, you know, I, I think she's just burned that bridge. But then I'm getting to think this is a very racialized attack. We know when you go there, 
that business advertisers, they get scared. Does some big business systems, some big Fortune 500 companies go, anybody that does this to this African-American Baptist preacher, do we want to be in business with this um, person and her family and everything else? I mean, I really wonder if, if she's going to cross a line the way she's going to get to spend tens of millions of dollars of her own personal money for two years because she runs again with all this baggage if she wins. And I don't know. I have to think if she had known where this thing was going, she might have told Brian Kemp, find somebody else because this is really, you know, doing damage to my pocketbook and and my company's reputation, I think. Tim? Well, well, you you know what? You you spoke of pocketbook. Um, Leffler's campaign released this ad that we're talking about with Castro and him calling uh, the police thugs and gangsters. Um, on November the 12th, so, so far until today, that ad has aired over 1,900 times at a cost of nearly a million dollars. That's just one ad. That that's the kind of money that they are pouring into this race, and that's why I think the attack ads are gonna just intensify because there's just a ton of money coming in here to to throw them on every time you turn the TV on. There they are, right? Do yeah. they have the cumulative effect? That's the question. Do they? I, I don't know. I, is she going to go so far people get numb to it because she jumps the shark, and it's so far out of bounds that people are like, well, then nobody could be like this, you know, and, and I wonder if she's going to push it too far. Uh, we're going to talk more about this because we don't have a ton of time, and we need to give it this proper time, but there's a lot of attacks she hasn't gone after, and you know from last week, I don't think that Fidel Castro and is just any remotely important because he didn't have a good position in that he didn't have a big position that was a decision maker in that church and this ain't south florida um so i i don't i think that's they're putting too much money in that one anyway but let me ask you one more thing uh catherine and tim brian kemp appointed her and there has been a wedge drawn in the republican party between the congressional representatives the senators and brad rathensberger and brian kemp Donald Trump's come out against Brian Kemp. Do you think, Catherine, that Kelly Loeffler will turn on the man that appointed her and come out against Brian Kemp and how he's handled this uh, voting count process in Georgia? Oh, that is a great question, and I would – I don't know the answer to that. I think – I think that that those are dangerous – that's dangerous territory because – you know, Brad Raffensperger and, and uh, Kemp are, are, you know, important Republican leaders in this con- in the state. And um, while you might not agree with what they're doing, um, a lot of people still have respect for them. And uh, everybody in Georgia wants our votes to count, even if, uh, I mean, even if you're disappointed that Trump won, uh, that Trump lost. You still want, you know, the votes to be counted fairly, I think, I hope. 
So I think uh, it would be dangerous territory to start attacking Kemp and Raffensperger if you want all the Republicans to come out and vote for you. Now, if all you're looking for is the Trump supporters to vote for you, then that's fine. But they need all the Republicans and some Democrats to come out and vote for them. Tim, same question. I mean, this is the person that gave her her start in politics uh, just a few months ago by appointing her. Does she turn on him? I think she would uh, for two reasons. Number one, Trump has already given his full-throated endorsement of both her and Senator Perdue. And number two, I think that the target has to be the Trump voters with the thought that they would be far, far, far more likely to both come out and vote and, if they get angered, to sit at home and sit this one out than the average Republican voter in the metro area and the hope of of both her and Purdue's campaign is that there will be something of a repeat of the general election when about 100,000 of these folks who voted for Joe Biden uh, actually also voted for either her or for David Perdue in particular. So I, I think that's the thinking there. And she has cast her lot totally with Trump now. And you know how that goes, guys. You've seen how it goes in Washington and with with all sorts of elected officials in the Republican Party. They're just going to have to ride it out with Trump, sink or swim, because basically Trump doesn't give them any choice, does he? Yes, and bringing it full circle, uh, today Sidney Powell, now she's been banished uh, by the Trump people, but she spoke up for – uh, Doug Collins and not Kelly Loeffler. So they're, this feud all on their side of the ball is it, very fascinating, and of course it's going to have big implications. We're going to discuss this uh, Georgia Senate runoff probably every, a little bit every week between now and um, January 5th, and next week, like I said, we're excited because I thought this Atlanta dream angle is so fascinating. And uh, Julie Kliegman, if you hadn't read the story, that's your homework for the week. Go find it on Sports Illustrated's website when she's going to be our guest to really go deep into this. And, of course, we'll talk about other topics of the day next week. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be